Father, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Lord, we love your leadership. Father, we love the way that you love your son. And I ask you, Father, that you would open up a door of glory to our hearts as we open up our hearts to you. We thank you for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, this is session nine of our first series. Next week, we're going to begin a, another 12-part series. We didn't make it to 12 because we had the two weekends in July. Although I'm going to add the message that uh, Francis Chan gave on John 17 a couple weeks ago. We're going to make that session 10, so it's going to be part of this series. And the next week, we're jumping in with a focus on John 14. So for 12 weeks, we, it will only be John 14, not only, but mostly John 14. Then the next semester will be mostly John 15 throughout the, uh, uh, that entire semester. We're going to continue right through verse by verse and go deeper and more in-depth than you would typically go as you work verse by verse through these chapters. Well, in this session, I'm going to look at the Last Supper, which is John chapter 13, as prophetic tokens of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I, I believe it was firmly in Jesus' mind what he was doing. John 17, when he was washing their feet and feeding them a physical meal. And then John 15, 16, and 17, he fed them a spiritual meal. And I'm very confident he was aware this was a foreshadow, a prophetic tokens of that glorious event that's yet coming, the great marriage supper of the Lamb. Paragraph A, and we're not going to look at all the notes here. I'll give you more on these handouts than, than we'll actually cover in the sessions. So at the Last Supper, paragraph A, Jesus is actually establishing the marriage covenant. And he sealed it with the cup of wine. And this was well known in Jewish tradition, but we might miss it at a quick read as we're going through John chapter 13. It says in the New King James that the supper being ended, and then the devil put betrayal in Judas's heart. But most translations don't uh, pick up the idea or don't focus on the idea that the supper ended, but it's during the supper. Most of the translations, they translate the Greek text here as during the supper or while the supper continued. And so we know it's the it's, it's the Last Supper. And the Last Supper is also uh, highlighted in Matthew 26. It's also highlighted in Mark chapter 14 and Luke 22. And so we can develop more the storyline of John 13 in those passages as well. But tonight I want to highlight three aspects of a Jewish marriage. Number one was the betrothal, the engagement. Number two is the wedding ceremony itself. And number three is the consummation of the marriage and the marriage supper and the celebration and the consummation of the marriage connected to the marriage supper. Paragraph B, I'm going to continue, that <clears throat> when a young man desired to marry a woman in ancient Israel, he prepared a covenant or a proposal and he would present it to the young woman, actually to her father, 
<clears throat> but he'd be looking at her, you know, kind of getting the wink and the nod. And this proposal, this covenant that he presented to the father and to the young woman was uh, to show his commitment to care for and provide for this young woman that would the, uh, 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 would potentially become his bride <clears throat> if they agreed with the covenant, with the deals, the terms of the betrothal. <clears throat> so paragraph C, we're looking at the stage one, the betrothal itself. There was a thing that was commonly called a bride price, and it's used in other cultures, not just in ancient Israel. The bride price was the price a man was willing to pay in exchange for permission to marry the woman. And he would give the money to the father. And the father would keep the money if anything ever went wrong. He always had this bride price and kept in reserve. In Jewish tradition, the bride price, the father of the bride had to be agreeable to the bride price and, and the bride as well. So the young man would give this proposal to the father and then he would pour out a cup or a glass of wine. And if, they, if the father and the bride accepted the cup of wine, then that means they accepted the proposal, the bride price, the deal was settled. And they were then legally betrothed or betrothed, which in ancient Israel, you were legally married. Though the consummation of the marriage might not take place often for a year later, but the marriage was actually legal at the betrothal. Today, we, in our culture, we call it the, the betrothal, the engagement. But if you look at the, uh, Mary and Joseph, uh, when Jesus was born, when they were betrothed, and then Joseph found Mary with child and wanted to divorce her. Well, they were only engaged because a betrothal or an engagement was the first step of a legal marriage. And to break the betrothal, you actually had to get a divorce, through a process. It's quite different than the Western culture today. So paragraph D, what's happening at the Last Supper, and we don't find all of these details in John 13, but we find these details in the parallel passages where uh, Matthew chapter 26 and, and again Luke uh, 22, Mark 14, they're telling what happens during the John 13 Last Supper. And here, we'll do, we all know it. We know the passage well. As they were eating, verse 26, the meal, verse 27, Jesus took a cup, and he presented it to them, and he says, drink it. And he goes, this is the cup of the new covenant, for this is the blood of the new covenant shed for you. Then he goes on to say in verse 29, I won't drink this cup again until I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom, meaning at the time of my return. So what's happening here is according to the ancient uh, uh, Israel's tradition is that Jesus is saying, I am offering you a betrothal. This is a statement of my commitment of the price I'm willing to pay to have you be my bride. And he offers the cup. And when the apostles took the cup, they were agreeing to the terms of the betrothals, what was going on. And when Jesus poured the cup of wine, he was saying, this is how the price I'm willing to pay to purchase you. This is the bride, pie, uh, the bride price that I'll pay. Paragraph E, now we know Paul makes the point that when a person is born again or they 
give their life to Jesus. They commit themselves to that relationship. Paul uh, talked about it. They were betrothed. They were legally married to Jesus in that day, though the marriage itself, the celebration, was yet future, and the consummation and the celebration of the marriage supper was yet future. Now today, we're living in the betrothal period of the new covenant. Jesus offered the cup. The disciples took it. He poured his life out, and he said, I'm coming back again, and we'll have the final cup of the marriage celebration and ceremony when I return, and we'll drink it in the kingdom together, which meant the marriage supper of the Lamb. Paragraph F. Let's look now at the second aspect of the marriage. Uh, the, the wedding was, was first the betrothal. Now it's the ceremony itself. And that's, I mean, we all can picture the ceremony. They stand together. They make their vows publicly. And the ceremony takes place publicly in front of many witnesses, whereas the betrothal was often a, quite of a private deal with the, with the, the uh, uh, man who wanted to marry the girl, sometimes his father and her father and, and, and the young woman herself. Sometimes others would be present. That was uh, far more uh, private. But the wedding ceremony, obviously, is a public one where they openly display their heart and their commitment in being together with one another. Now, the wedding ceremony would be parallel or would be uh, connected to the rapture of the church. When Jesus said in John 14, we started in John 13, now we're in John 14, he says, I want you to know, I'm coming again for you. And when I come again for you, they're not fully understanding what he's talking about just yet. He goes, I'm gonna come again for you, and when I do, I'm gonna receive you to myself, I mean forever, and we're gonna be together forever. And they're thinking, okay, he's gonna maybe go somewhere and come back next week or, or something. They're still perplexed about the idea he's dying. And we'll develop that as we uh, look at the uh, John 14, verse by verse in, in our next 12-part series on this, starting next week. Well, anyway, he says, I'm gonna come again to you and I'm gonna receive you to myself. And I'm gonna receive you publicly is the idea. And we're gonna celebrate our union together before all the witnesses. Well, Paul... He develops this idea in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We know the passage well. Paul said the Lord's going to descend from heaven. He's going to come for his bride. The dead in Christ will come out of their graves and they'll meet the Lord and in the air. But he's going to, every believer that's alive at that time, he's going to catch them up to meet him in the air, but he's also going to raise from the dead all the believers that have died in the past. So the dead believers, those that have died and those that are alive, will all be together with the bridegroom king in the presence of the whole world will witness that celebration as they come together. And John talks about this in Revelation 19, verse 7, and he calls it the marriage supper of the Lamb, and that follows the rapture. But the point I want to make here, this is the marriage supper. We'll get there in a minute. <clears throat> but it's the fact that the bride has made herself ready. And before the Lord returns, it's going to be the greatest miracle in all of human history, which is the transformation of the end-time church globally from a church with a Laodicean spirit of compromise and dullness, that's where the church is right now, 
I mean, there's a small percent, which is millions of believers, but out of a billion, millions is a very small percent. And I mean, tens of millions of believers are on fire. But hundreds of millions of believers around the world, they have been uh, uh, overcome with a spirit of dullness and compromise and lethargy depicted in the Laodicean message that, Je I mean, that Jesus gave the Laodicean church. But before the Lord returns, there's going to be this remarkable transformation in the final years leading to the, to the Lord's return, and the church is going to be a bride made ready. Now, this isn't talking about resurrected believers are made ready. Of course, that's true. He's talking about a time frame in human history that leads up to the coming of the Lord where the transformation will be so dramatic. I'm talking about a billion believers and more around the world. Their lives are transformed, and they're actually a prepared and ready bride. And when the, and the, and the, and the church across the, the nations Revelations 22, the spirit and the bride, just crying, come Lord Jesus. The spirit and the church and her bridal identity all around the nations, for the first time in history, the church will have her bridal identity intact and clear and she'll be an intercession, come Lord Jesus, come bridegroom God, and he's gonna come and answer to you know a billion or two believers who know who they are Walking in the first commandment, the love of God primary, the receiving it and returning it to him. It's the primary issue of their life, and it's overflowing as, uh, to one another as they love one another. That's the bride made ready. Again, this happens actually before the church's rapture. This happens in the Revelation twenty two seventeen, the verse I mentioned a minute ago, when the spirit in the end time church in her bridal identity, is crying out to the Lord, come, this is before he actually has appeared in the sky at the rapture, and he actually comes in answer to the cry of the, body, the global body of Christ in her bridal identity. Now, in 2,000 years, years of church history, the church has never universally, I mean, the majority of the church has never had the awareness of their bridal identity. They've known a bit that they're children of the kingdom, they're sons of God, they're in the family of God, and they've known that somewhat, but they've never ever understood who they were to Jesus as a bridegroom God. That only happens in the, the final generation, the generation the Lord returns. Well, paragraph G, Paul, he talks about this, this idea of the church in chapter Ephesians 5. He says there's coming a time and it always happens a little bit through history. I mean, again, it might be hundreds of thousands and millions, but compared to the billion of, of the church across the earth right now or those that claim to be part of the church, it's a very small percent, though I don't want to ever minimize the fact that some millions of people are pressing into the Lord right now. It's not going to just begin in the future. It's just the fact in the future, the percentage is going to grow. It's going to be the vast majority of the global body of Christ is going to be walking in this. Well, Paul talked about it here in Ephesians 5. He talked about Jesus cleansing the church by the word of God. And he's going to present himself. He's going to return to her, and she's going to be glorious. Not weighed down in compromise, but a vibrant spirit. 
She'll be a glorious church before the Lord returns. It's those final years, particularly the final three and a half years of natural history, in the great tribulation pressures and fires, the church is transformed. Not only in that, but that's when the transformation comes to fullness. Is in the fires of trouble and affliction, she has anchored herself in the reality of who Jesus is and who she is to Jesus, and that's the primary reality of her life. And the first commandment is established in first place before the Lord returns. Well, here in verse 27, it's referred to as a glorious church. John, I mean, Revelation 19, it's called a prepared bride or a ready bride. Some translations call it a prepared bride. But here we're gonna find out in Ephesians 5 how it happens. Jesus nourishes and cherishes her. That is very significant. It's that he's gonna wash her heart with the word of God, but it's the word of God, not just that calls her to active, diligent service, that it's the word of God washes her heart from her fears, her failures, her weaknesses, and lets her know how he feels about her. There's gonna be a, uh, and it's already beginning across the earth, a, 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 a revelation of the cherishing heart of the bridegroom king. Many believers through 2,000 years, they've known, they've thought of Jesus as a king who wants servants who are dutiful in doing the works of the kingdom and, and just causing the kingdom to increase. And they look at him and say, you're the king, we're the slaves, we're happy to, to just work for you. But before the Lord returns, he's going to reveal himself as the one that nourishes and cherishes uh, the heart of his people. And this is going to be the key that washes her with the water of the word. And then Paul goes on to say, he goes, let me be real specific. He said, man's going to leave his father and his mother and he'll be joined to his wife. Back in Genesis chapter 2, Adam and Eve in the garden. He's actually referring back to Genesis 2 when Adam and Eve were cleaving to one another. And Paul says, but let me tell you something that hasn't been well known or maybe not known at all. He goes, it's a great mystery. It's been a hidden part of God's plan. He goes, when Adam and Eve were embracing one another, they were simply a picture of Christ in the church. That's the real story behind what they were a picture of. But the point I want to make here is that it's the washing of the word that prepares her with a vibrant spirit washed from fear, rejection, shame, a sense of failure, and she sees what he sees when he looks at her, even in her weakness. And that's called washing her with the water of the word. Well, we started in John 13 at the Last Supper. Then I just mentioned John 14 a minute ago. Jesus says, I'm going to come back, and you're going to be with me forever. Now here, John 15, Jesus is saying, I will, I'm cleansing you by my own word, by speaking my word to you. That's what cleanses you when you receive it. But Jesus would know this is going to go to a whole nother level of cherishing and nourishing the, the body of Christ and the end-time church so they're actually a glorious church or a prepared bride. And the, and the great centerpiece of the story, it's the mystery, the hidden story of Jesus, the bridegroom king, and his people, more than servants, but his cherished bride. That's who she knows she will be. Well, paragraph H, 
the third aspect of the wedding, uh, it, it comes to the point of the consummation. The marriage celebration is in the sky. Now it's the consummation and the wedding supper that celebrates that. The last supper in John 13 was a down payment of this grand marriage supper of the Lamb. I mean, this is so dynamic and so dramatic, it's almost beyond our belief. that we can, I mean, we really don't grasp this. It's bigger than what we get. That the Lamb of God, fully God, becomes a human, a man, and then has a bride. And then celebrates. It's not a, a reluctant marriage. He's not saying, well, you know, I did die for you. I guess we're in this together. No, he is celebrating and he wants all to know how he feels about this union with his bride. John, uh, Revelation 19, John the Apostle is being visited by an angel. And this angel says this, tells him, he goes, write this statement. Blessed are all those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now the marriage supper of the Lamb is after the rapture of the church. After John 14, he comes back for her catches her up to meet her in the air. And the rapture of the church, when they meet the Lord in the air, is connected in the same uh, time frame as the second coming. The rapture is what happens to the church. We get transformed, and we meet the Lord in the air. The second coming is what he does in proximity to the earth. He's really not just second coming to the earth. He's coming to Jerusalem, specifically. The second coming should be stated, his second coming to Jerusalem, which means the earth as well, but specifically to the city of the great king. Now this is a, a, a statement that has caused commentators a bit of confusion over the years. Oh, I mean over 2,000 years. Blessed are those who are called, or many translations would say, those that are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And of course, Jesus is the lamb, the slain lamb. And who are these blessed people who are invited to the marriage supper? And some say, well, it's the bride who's also an invited guest. Well, typically, a bride doesn't think of herself as an invited guest to her wedding. She says, no, my family and loved ones are the invited guests. I'm the bride. And so what I believe is that the marriage supper of the Lamb will take place on the millennial earth. And that Jesus, he comes back, catches his bride up to meet them in the air. And when he meets them in the air, they don't go away to heaven for seven years like some uh, uh, teach. And I understand that teaching, but I don't think that's, that's the biblical uh, perspective. He meets them in the air, and they're transformed and mobilized and rewarded. And it's a glorious uh, uh, time. And I don't know how long that lasts, that catching up in the air. It's, it's not real long, but it's not one second either. Because some people, when they th think of the rapture, because their body is translated in one split second, in the twinkling of an eye, they're transformed. They think the entire wedding celebration is in the twinkling of an eye. It's that everyone's transformed, and the marriage ceremony's over, and Jesus said, amen, let's go, let's stand. And it's like, no, this is his wedding celebration. He's showing the whole created order how he feels about her. And I don't know how long that time in the sky, it's, it's a short time. I mean, it's hours and days, not months and years. And then he brings them to the earth. So he, 
he, he captures them in the sky. And in my uh, strong opinion, they never lose proximity to the earth itself. It's really the mobilizing area where he rewards them. And it's the only place where a billion believers of the end time harvest and maybe a billion believers from, from the past all can fit in one, one area together. And the Lord says, well, I did Genesis 1. I can meet in the sky. That's easy. You're going to have resurrected bodies. So there's no problem. And so that to me is the gathering place and the mobilizing place and the celebration of their wedding vows before all the world because it says every eye will see him when he comes back. Every eye will see him. And so after that, he, uh, uh, Jesus and the, and the uh, body of Christ, the billion or two or three, I, I guess it's several billion from history plus the end time harvest, they come uh, 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 down to the millennial earth because what happens is Jesus brings the new Jerusalem down to the millennial earth. So born again, resurrected, raptured believers, they live in the new Jerusalem, but the new Jerusalem has descended down to the millennial Jerusalem. It's in proximity to it. And I don't want to develop that right now. Uh, there's a, I'm, I mean, I got a lot of enthusiasm and there's quite a few verses about that, but I don't want to take time on that right now. So if, if, if the Lord came and, you know, in, in the next years and you were raptured, you would meet the Lord in the sky, be in the New Jerusalem. The New Jerusalem would come down, but there would still be people who survived the Great Tribulation that were not saved. And they actually get saved after the Lord returns. They've never died. They, you know, they saw the Lord return, but they've never died. Some people think, well, if they get saved after Jesus returns, isn't that the same as getting saved after you die? I go, no, they've never died. You know, they just saw him, oh my goodness, what is this? And so the nations, all of Israel that survives the great tribulation, the unsaved survivors, Jewish survivors, they all come to salvation. And I'm guessing there's, if I had to guess a number, it'd be five or six million of them. And they get saved and then the nations get saved. And those that are get saved, they are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. They get to participate in it with natural bodies, whereas you will have a resurrected body live in, the, in New Jerusalem. But because like angels can go from heaven to earth pretty quick, you can move from the New Jerusalem to the place you rule and reign on the earth you know, in, in moments, in, in just seconds of, I mean, near instantaneously, you can move from your dwelling in the New Jerusalem to the place you serve, reigning and ruling on the millennial earth. But there will be people with uh, natural bodies, millions of them populating the millennial earth at that time. So I don't believe the bride is the ones that are blessed that you're invited. I believe it's the believers the newly saved believers on the millennial earth after the Lord's return. Paragraph one, Isaiah 25, I believe Isaiah highlights this, and we're just gonna barely mention this, but Isaiah 25 talks about in this mountain, and that's the mountain of the Lord in Jerusalem, that's where, where Jesus' throne is in millennial Jerusalem, the thousand-year reign, the millennial kingdom. Jesus' throne is in millennial Jerusalem, and Jesus' throne is also connected to the new Jerusalem. Somebody says, is his throne in the new Jerusalem or the millennial Jerusalem? And I say, yes. The, the new Jerusalem is the north end of his throne complex, 
And the millennial Jerusalem is the south end, but it's one glorious, vast governmental complex called Jesus' throne of glory that has dimensions of it in the new Jerusalem and dimensions of the millennial Jerusalem. His entire family is connected together with resurrected bodies at that time on the mountain of the Lord. Well, uh, Isaiah 25 Isaiah talks about this mountain, talking about the mountain of the Lord in Jerusalem in the millennium. The Lord of hosts will make for all people, all the nations, a feast of choice pieces, or some translations say of choice foods. Now this is the strangest verse until you understand it actually means what it says. He's going to make a feast for all the people. You could put the word instead of people, nations. All the peoples, all the nations, the unsaved survivors of the great tribulation who are now coming to salvation quickly after the Lord returns and they fill the millennial earth and he will make a feast for them. And they're thinking, man, this is the finest dining you could imagine because the Lord is the one who makes this feast. But it's not the feast only for the believers who are resurrected. It's for all the nations and they're celebrating it on that mountain. Verse 7. And the Lord will destroy on this holy mountain in Jerusalem, is the context, the veil that is spread over all the nations. There's a veil right now over all the nations. When you look up, you see the sky and you see the stars. But there's what's really up when you look up is there's a glorious realm of the spirit of the Father's throne and the angels, but we don't see it. There's a veil over us right now. There's a veil over the earth, but one day that veil of darkness is going to be lifted, and believers on the millennial earth will actually be able to see the Lord with their eyes. They'll see resurrected believers with their eyes, and that veil will be lifted. And at that time, so you're not confused, it's when death is swallowed up forever. And it's at that time when the Lord wipes away all the tears from the faces of the people on the earth. And he goes on, and he talks more about that. Now that's uh, uh, to some folks, well most folks, that's a new idea. When they think of the marriage supper of the Lamb, they think, I don't know who's invited to it. It can't really be the bride because it's her wedding. Who else is it? I don't know. And when they read Matthew, I mean Isaiah 25, that mountain with a feast where the veil's lifted, I've talked to people, I go, what do you think that is? They go, that's the strangest verse. I go, what if it means exactly what it says and it's not so strange? It's just really straightforward. And I think this wedding feast, some say the entire thousand-year period is an ongoing wedding feast. I don't know if that's true or not true. But the Lord is so extravagant, it would be very easy for him. I mean, we will, we will live billions and billions of years. And others say, you know, I've heard it uh, referred to in Esther chapter 1 where the king, uh, when Esther becomes, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the bride of the king, Ahasuerus, he has a feast for 180 days. I mean, that's so extravagant, a 180-day feast. I mean, you'd probably gain a little weight by that time. 180-day feast of the finest, richest food every single day? Well, if a king of Persia could have a 180-day feast, why can't the king of king have a feast longer than that? Anyway, I don't really know how long the feast is. I don't, I don't need to know. I just know that if the food's going to be phenomenal, and the resurrected believers, by the way, you'll have a resurrected body and you will actually eat real food. It will be real. And you will celebrate and you will enjoy food. You'll have food with none of the negative side effects. I mean, praise the Lord for that one, right? 
Okay, let's look at paragraph I. So the Father's house. This is the Father's house is coming down to the earth. Now we're in the Father's house right now, spiritually speaking. He is our Father. We're in his kingdom. We're in his house. And we can sit at his table and he feeds us spiritually. We're in his house right now, the day we're born again. But we're talking about the Father has a physical house. Not just a spiritual house. I love the spiritual house. We're in it. But the Father has a physical house. That's also in John chapter 14. Again, all of these, many of these things I'm sharing tonight, they're, they're hinted, not I mean hinted at, there's seed thoughts in John 13 to 17 of the, because the marriage supper, the last supper, speaking of the marriage supper, is really a major statement of the grand wedding, the grand love affair between God and his people, the bridegroom king and his beloved bride. The whole thing is shouting about that and preparing the church to enter into that forever and forever. But the father's physical house is in context to the, to, the, to the wedding supper. And Jesus said in John 14, we're back to the upper room discourse here. He goes, in my father's house are many dwelling places. Uh, this translation, New King James, has many mansions. Others says dwelling places. There's different words, but it's the idea that individual believers have a, a place in the city that is connected to them in a very specific way. And he goes, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to prepare that place in the Father's house. Now, when he says, I'm going to go prepare a place, the, the place he prepares is the New Jerusalem, but the place where he goes to prepare it is actually the cross. He's not saying, yes, I've been a carpenter for years, so I'm going to go to heaven and pull out the old toolbox and start from scratch and build this amazing city. He's not talking about his carpenter skills when he goes, I go to prepare a place. He's actually talking about the cross. I'm going to the cross to prepare a place, and the place is for your, you being qualified to enter into my father's, I mean, literal, I mean, physical house with golden streets, yet many supernatural dimensions, but it will be not just an ethereal, dreamy place. It will have trees, and it will have water, and it will have food and fruit trees, and mansions, and streets, and gold, and light, and, and elders, and thrones, all these dimensions of a real city, the new Jerusalem. It's a fantastic reality. Revelation chapter 21, an angel appears to John and says, he shows him the new Jerusalem, the city. Now, he names the city the bride. The Bible names the city the bride, and the Bible names the people, the redeemed the bride. So some people say, well, which is it? Is it the city or is it the people? Is it the redeemed? Are they the bride or is it the city the bride? I believe it's, it's both because the city is so designed to satisfied and, and uh, oh, what's the word, to correspond with the reality of the bride. I mean, the water she drinks, I believe the, her heart is exhilarated and inspired. The food she eats exhilarates her. The music she hears inspires her heart for love. Everything in the city inspires and invigorates the bride. So the Lord has made a city so corresponding to the heart and the character of the bride. He names the city the bride because it hosts the bride. The host of the city is the bride herself. And so some folks debate well, it's not the people, it's the city. Some people say, no, no, it's not the city, it's the people. I think it's both. It's a city that completely corresponds and made for the heart of the bride. 
But here's the point I want to make is that that city descends, it comes down to the millennial earth. Now, three times in the book of Revelation, the city is said to descend to the earth. It descends out of the supernatural realm of the third heaven with the Father, and it actually comes down to the millennial earth. That is such a magnificent reality that the city descends to the earth. Well, let's look at Roman numeral now, uh, chapter 2. Now, we're going to, I'm going to take, a, I'm not going to develop this so much because it's a quite uh, in-depth, multi-layer concept that I, I believe is thoroughly biblical concept, but it's multi-layered and it's bigger than our purposes for tonight to break down uh, what the biblical insights into this multi-layered story that I'm going to hint at right now. And some of you, if this is the first time you've ever heard it, you're going to be going, what in the world? Because it's not talked about much. And most people, it's believers that love Jesus. They're unfamiliar with the ideas. They've not thought much about them. But what Jesus is going, what I'm going to uh, look at right now is, is the conditions that lead to the John 17 miracle. The John 17 miracle, the last seven verses of John 17 I mean, it's just an indescribably glorious miracle in John 17. Look at paragraph B. We'll go to B, and then we'll go back to A in a moment. Look at the miracle. Jesus said this in John 17. The glory, he's talking to the Father, that you gave me, I have given them. Now, here's the story. This is breathtaking. That they may be one, like the Father and the Son are one. Like, excuse me? One like What? Jesus said, Father, they will have a supernatural unity like we do. I mean, this is so staggering. It's stunning in its magnitude. It's beyond anything we're grasping. Now, I don't mind it. I actually appreciate it that this verse has been used, uh, you know, over particularly the last number of decades. I've heard of this verse for 50 years that, uh, that I've walked with the Lord, that we use John 17 as the verse you know, when Billy Graham comes to the city and the Methodists and the Baptists work together with the Catholics and the Nazarenes and they all have the big, you know, the pastors in the get together and they say, we're going to all work together and they call that John 17 and then the whole world's going to know Jesus was from God because the denominations are cooperating with each other instead of fighting each other. And there's a little bit of truth to that. I think that touches people a little bit. But uh, John 17 is so far beyond uh, different denominational leaders cooperating with each other in a citywide outreach of evangelism at the stadium. And although I love that, I appreciate that actually. I don't look at that and say that's nothing, but I'm saying I'm certainly not going to reduce John 17 to that. Though that's tokens of John 17. Look at this. This thing is going to be so supernatural that human beings, beloved human beings, are going to be so one with one another, it's going to reflect the supernatural unity of the Father and the Son. And what's going to be the result of that? Look at verse 23. The millennial earth, I'm talking about the whole earth, is going to know. I'm not talking about 2% of the earth or 10% of the earth. The entire millennial earth, before it's over, they will know that the God of Israel sent Jesus of Nazareth. The whole earth will know that. And the whole earth will know, and they will submit to, I mean, they'll, they'll participate in it, that 
The Father loves his people in the same intensity that he loves Jesus. Now, I've never seen a citywide outreach with a bunch of denominational leaders, which I appreciate working together, that have led the city and the earth to know that the God of Israel loves believers in the same intensity he loves Jesus. I've never seen that takeaway yet. But that's where it's going. So I, you look at John 17, and you go, what in the world? Where is this going? The earth is going to see something so dramatically supernatural. I call it the greatest social miracle in history, where he's going to bring people together. It will be so stunning and shocking that the unbelievers in the earth will say, yes, Jesus of Nazareth is sent by the God of Israel. There's no question whatsoever. And love is the bond between all of them. That's the takeaway. And so I'm, nev I'm never going to let John 17 be reduced to less than that, even though there are, you know, partial expressions of some of this happening in, throughout church history. So let's go back up to paragraph A. J Isaiah 19, verse 24 at a quick read, you'll miss it. If you read it quick, but if you pause and, and look at it and you put together the rest of the biblical narrative, Isaiah 19 is, this is, I mean, this is incredibly glorious, indescribably glorious. It says in Isaiah 19, verse 24, that in that day, that's the day related to the Lord's return, Israel is, a, is going to be one of three. And Israel, one of three, the, the idea is deeply unified with two others, two other empires, with Egypt and Assyria. Assyria. And the three of them together in unity will bring blessing in the midst of the land. Most translations in, in the Old Testament, when you see the word land in the Old Testament, and many commentators will make this point, the word for land and the word for earth is the exact same word. So when, you know, there's hundreds of Bible translations. So when the, you know, the 40, 50, 60 scholars translate, you know, so many translations of the, of the Bible around the world today. When they get around, you know, the, you know, the, the uh, room, they're working it together, translation, translating the Hebrew. They got to figure out, does this mean the earth or does this mean the land? And many translations in Isaiah 19, they'll say they will be a blessing in the whole earth. And I think that's the right one. But it will be a blessing in the land as well, but it will go far beyond the land. So what does this mean? Why is this so dramatic? Let's read it again. In that day, this is John 17. This is the backstory of John 17. That's why this is so important that it's the backstory. In that day, Israel will be one, will be, and the idea is deeply unified. This is the John 17 unity with the empire of Egypt and the empire of Assyria. I mean, this is staggering, and there'll be a blessing in the whole earth. Why is that so important? Well, we know the empire of Egypt has been a historical enemy, arch enemy of Israel for thousands of years. Egypt and Israel have been absolutely have had hostility towards each other for thousands of years. Well, there's a, the largest empire in the world in Isaiah's day was called Assyria. And Assyria, uh, in Isaiah's day, again, in Isaiah 700 years B.C., right in that area, that's uh, close enough, a little bit, he preached for 50 years, so it was more than just 700. 
But 700 BC, Assyria was the superpower of the earth. And Assyria, I have it written there, ancient Assyria is uh, that empire includes the land and the people in 14 Middle East nations today. When you say Assyria, Isaiah meant one gigantic, like the USSR, this vast empire made up of many nations. But if you look at the land, uh, 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 the geography of Assyria, the ancient Assyria, it's Iraq, Iran, Syria, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Lebanon. It's these nations, part of Turkey. What's the point? These are Islamic nations. I mean, this is, you're telling me that Israel is going to be unified to Arab, former Islamic terrorist nations, and with Egypt, their longest-term hostility? And Isaiah says, yes, it's going to blow the minds of the nations of the earth when this happens. They're going to be unified in Christ related to the second coming of Christ. And again, if you read that real quick, you kind of miss it. But if you read it in context of a bunch of other verses, he's talking John 17 back in Isaiah. This is Isaiah's version of John 17. Unity and the earth sees the power of it. I mean, can you imagine? Now, what is this blessing in all the earth? Paragraph C. The blessing in all the earth, and I'm going to just let you read that on your own, is the Garden of Eden conditions are going to be restored right there. That's the blessing. And there's many passages that verify this, and I don't want to go into that right now. Again, there's a number of sub-storylines here, and I want us to really see the, 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 the John 17 love story coming out of the Last Supper and the Father's house and being washed and cleansed by the water of the Word. I, I want us to see that storyline here without getting you know, uh, uh, sidetracked with glorious biblical details, but I want to keep this in focus. We're talking about the Last Supper being a down payment of the marriage supper of the Lamb, the great love feast, the great celebration of love of God and his people. But when the Lord returns, there's going to be this millions of believers, Arab and Egyptian believers, Radically, and, though, and by the way, the revival of Arab and Egyptian believers is happening right now. I mean, millions are coming to the Lord. Millions are. Well, I mean, it's a small number of millions, but it's several million. But the number, it's clear from Scripture. There is going to be a, re a historic revival in the Middle East of proportions where tens of millions of former Islamic, even, ter even Islamic terrorists, they're not all Islamic terrorists, but many uh, from Islam and many from Egypt are going to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus. They're going to be lovesick worshipers of Jesus. And the storyline is they're going to stand with Israel while Israel's under persecution during the Great Tribulation, they will stand with Israel and they will say, they're going to reveal the God of Israel to unbelieving Israel. Former Muslims and Egyptians that were hostile to Israel will actually stand and even be willing to lay their life down to reveal the love of Jesus to Israel. And Israel will say, what is this? What meaneth thou this? How could you do this? And they're going to say, because the love of Yeshua, of Jesus, is so great, we love him and he loves you, so we're going to reveal that love to you, even in your persecution. We're going to stand with you.
They're going to say, wait, you're our Egypt and Assyria, these 14 uh, Middle East nations. This is the, the longest term hostility in human history. 4,000 years of hostility. It's going to be healed on a global level with the whole earth watching it. In the Middle East, as Israel flees persecution of the Antichrist, they're going to run into these evolving nations, but God's going to have a, a table prepared for them in the presence of their enemies. It's going to be this on fire, tens of millions of former Muslims or, I mean, Egyptians, Arabs, who are going to say, we love you because we love Jesus and he loves you. And the Jews are going to say, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? And they're going to reveal the God of Israel to unbelieving Israel. That's the storyline. That's the John 17. Well, John 17, the unity is bigger than that, but the epicenter of that unity is right in the Middle East. And when Jesus comes and, and Israel then comes to Jesus, unsaved Israel that survives the Great Tribulation, again, I'm imagining five or six million of them, because Zechariah says there'll be third of all of, of all of Israel. And they say there's about 18 million Jews, depending on how you count. So a third of it would be five or six million, something like that. That's not an exact number, but a ball, ballpark number. But that geographic area is going to be restored in the unity of that family dynamic. The Garden of Eden reality is going to be restored, and it's going to progressively spread to the whole earth out of that geographic area. And I'm not going to prove this point right now, but I believe that the ancient Garden of Eden, the Genesis chapter 2 Garden of Eden, was the boundary lines of what God promised Abraham from the Euphrates River in Iraq to the River of Nile, the, the, uh, I mean the River of Egypt, Nile. That was the original, I believe, Garden of Eden, and the Lord's going to restore it. But what about the people in that land? It's going to be the family of Abraham. Think of the family of Abraham. Isaac and Ishmael, Esau and Jacob. Many of those descendants are Muslims and Egyptians today, and many of them are Israelis. The family of Abraham is going to be healed on a global level in the Middle East. In John 17, the epicenter of it is going to be right there, and that's what Jesus, I believe, that's in his mind in part when he's feeding this this spiritual dinner to Israel. And Israel, I don't, the 12 apostles, they don't get any of it. They're just going, glory, awesome. Where are you going after dinner? Because <laughs> I'm going to die. Like, what's that mean? I'm going to die. Like, that sounds like he's going to die. And they were, I mean, they couldn't grasp it at all. So I have no doubt they did not grasp the implications of what he was saying. Top of page three. Now I'm just going to just hint at this and not develop it, but I, it's an important storyline because the John 13 to 17, these five chapters, this is the spiritual diet that the Lord is going to use. Not only these five chapters, by any means, not only, but this is the greatest teaching given by the greatest teacher, and it's going to equip the church in the hour of the greatest transformation miracle when a billion-plus believers are going to be transformed to being a prepared bride and uh, being prepared for the wedding supper of the Lamb. I mean, it's the most grand story. Now, I realize if this is the first time you've ever thought or heard this, you're going like, man, you lost me. You know, when you took a left turn, I went flying off the back end of the truck here. I don't even know what you're talking about. And so I, I appreciate that. Because if it's brand new, it, you, you need to take it, look at it line by line, 
Uh, not that all of my insights are right. I'm sure I got some errors in there, something I'll, you know, I'll understand more later in the days to come. But get with some people, talk about this and say, you know, wow, let's check these verses out. Like I tell people, I say, I don't want you to believe anything that I say or anybody else here says that you can't see with your own eyes in your own Bible. If you don't see it in your, with your eyes in your Bible, don't believe it. So if this is interesting to you, make sure you can find it in the Bible before you get too excited about it. Just go, okay, I'm alerted that this is something grand is happening, but I want to see it with my own eyes in my own Bible. Well, let's look at uh, the grand uh, Roman number three. I call it God's grand family plan <laughs> because he's going to restore. Can you imagine the Abraham's family being restored and healed on a global level? Esau and Jay, I mean, Isaac and, and, and Ishmael. Ishmael, that's Egypt and, and, and the Arabs. They're going to be healed. Abraham's descendants are going to be healed on a global level. What? This is a marvelous, magnificent plan. And John 17 says the earth will see the glory of this. And they will believe that the God of Israel loves them the way he loves Jesus. I mean, that's just almost, it's so beyond indescribably glorious. Well, here's the plan. Romans chapter 11. God says, here's what I'm going to do. He tells Paul. He goes, I'm going to provoke unbelieving Israel to jealousy, to spiritual jealousy, godly jealousy. I'm going to provoke them to jealousy by what I do with Gentiles. Because Israel, they don't want anything to do with Gentiles spiritually. They're thinking the Gentiles are pagans. They're like off, you know, they're, they're, they worship demons, idolaters back in the Old Testament day. I mean, they're bad news. It's spiritually speaking. But he goes, I'm going to do something so radical among Gentiles. I'm going to release the power of salvation to where the Jews are going to look at Gentiles and be jealous. What that means is the Jews are going to say, we want to have spiritually what you have. Now, this has never happened in history. Now, there's, a, there's an exception. One, you know, an occasional Jewish person looks at a Gentile and says, wow, I want to know Jesus like you do. That, that does happen here and there through history. But he's talking about the entire nation of Israel, looking at Gentiles. This is unthinkable. When Paul said this, he must have been mocked by everyone. The Gentile, the Jews, nationally, I'm talking about the whole nation, is going to say, what the Gentiles have spiritually in their walk with God, we want it. We're provoked to have what they have. How on earth, after 2,000 years of Jews seeing themselves persecuted by Gentiles since Christ, how are they suddenly going to say, we want what you have in God, oh, beloved Gentiles? Like, boy, that's going to be a change of conversation, a radical change of things. And then when that happens... Look at Romans 11, verse 26. All of Israel, literally every single Jew who survives the great tribulation, the five or six million, I'm guessing, again, that's not an actual number I'm sure of, but all of them will become born again. And they will do it in the wake of the witness of seeing Gentiles love them and reveal the love of God to them. Well, what's the context to it? Well, the context to it is that I have this in paragraph B, and I develop a little bit on the notes here. This is one of the most ignored, and I understand why it's ignored, but startling, troubling, perplexing truths of Old Testament, I mean, of end-time prophecy in the Old Testament. There are 30 uh, prophecies, 30 passages right there in paragraph B. I'm not going to go into them. Where the Old Testament prophets prophesied that at the end of the age, 
that Jews are going to be fleeing. Not, not all of them will flee the land. Many of them will flee the land as refugees under persecution. And many of them will be taken against their will as captives. Taken out of Jerusalem in captivity like the, like the Nazi Holocaust type stuff. A great persecution is coming to Israel in the end times. 30 different prophecies, Old Testament. All Jewish prophets are saying this. It's not the New Testament. It's the Old Testament prophets saying it. And the Jews have got the darkest, most uh, difficult hour of persecution yet ahead of them. But what's going to happen is God's going to raise up Gentiles in the Middle East, Arabs, Egyptians, former Muslims, that are going to stand with persecuted Israel and say, we're going to stand with you, protect you, provide you, and be with you. Like the famous story of Corey Ten Boom and the Holocaust and uh, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in the Holocaust, who's Gentiles who stood up for Israel, and Israel calls those the righteous Gentiles. There's going to be millions and millions in the Middle East who are going to do this. It's going to be the most dramatic story imaginable. So let me see, I give you a few verses here, just a, I, I gave it, there's quite a bit on this uh, subject, but it's so new to most believers, they've never read those 30 verses, they've never taken, if they have, they haven't taken them literal, that they mean what they say and say what they mean, but this is the context of Jewish persecution and Gentiles standing for them, like the Cory Tim Boom and the Hiding Place, and if you don't know that story, it's all, you know, go to YouTube, you can see it everywhere. The Hiding Place, a very famous story. Billy Graham took Cory Tim Boom around the world and told her story how her family stood for the Jews in Holland, and her whole family was killed in the Holocaust in the death camps because they stood up for the Jews. They were Gentiles that refused to back away because they loved Jesus. And Corey Tim Boom was, the, I believe, the youngest of the family. She's the only survivor of it and went to tell her story and the whole Dietrich Bonhoeffer story. Okay, let's look at top of page four. Paragraph F. And I'm just literally going to take another moment, another couple moments here because I want to tie these passages in John 13 to 17 to this glorious storyline that is terrible and horrendous, but it has a glorious dimension of all of Israel coming to salvation and God releasing the glory of God in Israel in a way that is beyond any other nation in human history of what he's going to do in Israel. So paragraph F, right now the Lord is preparing a table in the presence of Israel's future. I mean, they got the enemies now, but when the Antichrist comes into Israel, Israel's going to flee. And they're going to flee when you're in Israel and you flee. You're not going to get on a plane and fly to Chicago. Jesus said when the Antichrist reveals himself, if you're in the field, don't even go back and get clothing. Take off because there's going to be a national shutdown to lock in the Jews to exterminate them. That's the plan of the enemy. Take off right away. Well, they're running from Israel. Guess where they run? To Islamic nations. That's not very promising to a Jew running from the Antichrist to Islamic nations because they, they don't like them either. But what's going to surprise them, there's going to be tens of millions 
of new believers. I mean, 5, 10, 20 years. I, I don't know how, what new means, but I, I don't mean a month older than the Lord. The great revival happening in the Middle East right now, they are going to be prepared to receive the unbelieving Jews in flight. I mean, it's going to be remarkable. Paragraph G tells us, Zechariah 13, that a third of Israel, that's, again, if there's 18 million, I don't know the real number because they debate that number. Some say 15 million, some say 20 million. I don't know. But 18 million is a common number. A third of them, that's where I get the five or six million, are going to be unsafe survivors of the tribulation, and they're going to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus. Paragraph I. Now we're going to John 17. Jesus says, verse 22, when he heals the family of Abraham, Ishmael, Isaac, Jacob, Esau, right there in the Middle East, because of these Mus former Muslims and Arabs and Egyptians standing with Israel, unbelieving Israel, just, again, it's just mind-blowing to them. Verse 20, John 17, Jesus prays. He says, the glory, Father, that I have given to them, and he, Jesus gave the glory of God to the early apostles in the book of Acts, just in a very short-term, temporal way, the glory of God was on them, and they walked with one heart in Acts 2, Acts 4, Acts 5, and those, but then it kind of dissipated pretty soon after the day of Pentecost. It didn't last very long, but the glory, there was a down payment of the glory of the book of Acts in Acts 2 and Acts 4, and he says, but he says, Jesus, he says, Father, I want to release the spirit of glory on them. He did then in the early church for a short time, but I'm going to do it in an intense way to where my people will be one as we are one, this supernatural unity. And verse 23, the millennial earth is going to know that you're the one that sent me. You're the one that loved them as you love me. And look at this, verse 26. Then he says, Father, I'm going to declare your name to them. And they're going to end up loving me like you love me. Like, excuse me? Human beings loving Jesus like the Father does? Like the Father does? Like Jesus, did you like take this a step beyond reality? Human beings loving Jesus like the Father. Well, paragraph J, you can read it on your own. Deuteronomy 30, one of the final prophecies of Moses. I call it one of the most important end time prophecies in the Old Testament. God said, you can read it on your own. The Lord says, in the final days, in the last days, when I deliver you from captivity in the nations, and you return to me, look at verse 6, the very end of Deuteronomy 30. He goes, I'm going to circumcise your heart and the heart of your children, and you're going to love me by the power of God in that day. Now, this has never happened yet. This is yet future. Jesus in John 17 said, Father, they will love you like, they will love me like you love me. He's quoting Moses here. Actually, he's referencing Deuteronomy 30. Moses prayed this father that they would love me. Their hearts would be circumcised. That means the power of God on their heart. They will love me and their children will love me. This thing is going to be a great wedding feast, a celebration. It's gonna, the whole earth is going to be filled with the glory of God. Now, paragraph K, it's interesting that in John 15 and 14, Jesus talks about greater love and greater works. And it's easy to read those, chap those passages and just kind of, wow, that's neat. There's coming an hour where greater love that any person has, the greatest love that any person could have is going to be displayed on an international level. And that's when Gentiles are standing for Jews in that hour. That's not the only time, but there's a greater love that's going to be manifest. Now, Jesus was talking about himself, but not only himself. 
He says, I am the example, and he said in John 13, and one of these days you'll grasp what I'm doing to you. You don't grasp it now, but you will grasp it. And they did it a little bit in their day, but it's really this family storyline of the kingdom of God that there's going to be a greater love generation of Gentiles that will lay their life down even for Israel. And Israel will say, there's nothing like this. Well, there's not only greater love, there's greater works. There's going to be miracles that are going to go beyond the book of Acts and miracles that are even going to go beyond what God did with Moses and the ten plagues of Egypt, etc., and all the miracles in the wilderness. Look at Micah 7. It's one of my favorite Old Testament prophecies of the end times. The Lord says, as in the days when you came out of Egypt, meaning under Moses, with the ten plagues coming against Pharaoh, he goes, as in the days where those miracles destroyed Pharaoh, I'm going to show you those miracles again. And it's not going to destroy Pharaoh. It's going to destroy the end time Pharaoh called the Antichrist. You're going to see the Moses miracles again. There's coming yet a day where there will be greater works. And there's coming a day where there will be greater love. And there's coming a day where the family of Abraham will be healed. And there's coming a day where the unity will be so supernatural, the entire millennial earth will see what's happening. Not only the Middle East. It's bigger than the Middle East. But that's the epicenter. And they will, they will uh, give themselves to the God of Israel. And then paragraph L, I'm just going to mention one more end-time reference that Jesus talks about. And he goes, I want you to know, he goes, and I'm telling you this so you don't stumble. You don't backslide is the idea in John 16. And, and the stumble is, means to fall away from the faith at this point, in, the, in this context. He goes, immediately, they're going to put you out of the synagogue, the Jews are. Immediately, these Jews are going to think they're serving me when they kill you. And that happened in the first century. And a little bit through history, but not so much more past the first history. I mean, the first century. But there's coming a day when there will be an army of religious people, Islamic terrorists, radical Islamic terrorists, but something even beyond that before it's over. It's radical antichrist terrorists that will actually have a spiritual sense that they're serving God while they're killing Jews. Now, that happened, again, in the first century in a, in a limited way, but there's coming a, a global dimension of this. And the point I'm making at, I'll just say it kind of rapid fire, John 13, there's a marriage supper. And the marriage supper speaking, I, I, I mean, the last supper speaking of the marriage supper. And then John 14, Jesus says, when I come back for you, I'll catch you in the air, and we'll celebrate who we are together. And then he goes on in John 14, it says there's greater miracles that you've ever seen are going to happen, and you'll, it'll make sense when you get there. Then he talked about greater love. Then he talked about washing them with the water of the word. Then he talked about enemies that think they're serving God with a spiritual perversion, thinking they're killing God by killing the Jews and even killing born-again believers. And then the crescendo is in John 17. Verse 23, they are one as the Father and the Son are one. This company of Jews and Gentiles, this one new man coming together in this glorious unity of John 17, 23. And then the crescendo of crescendos, they love Jesus in the same overflow of love that the Father loves Jesus, a supernatural love for Jesus. And the wedding feast and the grand story of salvation is set and it unfolds through the millennial kingdom. And then after that, for billions and billions of years. And that's our family story. Amen. I know I talked so fast. I wanted to at least 
Get it down where you can say, what? And I'll have, we'll have these notes on the internet and the transcription of it too. So you could say, let's, could you do that a little bit slower? So I was going a little bit fast because I know I'm going to have a transcription for you. For some of you that want to tear this down little piece by, uh, piece by piece. Amen. Let's have our worship team come on up. Remember next Friday, we begin the, the intimacy with the Trinity. We're going to look at John 14. Themes, we're not sticking only to John 14, but that's the primary focus of this next semester is John 14. Let's stand. <laughs> Father, we love you. Lord, we ask you. This many-layered storyline that you give hints at and seed thoughts in John 13 to 17. I ask that this storyline would come together in our understanding using the scripture, Genesis to Revelation. I ask for this storyline to connect that we could see who you are, that we would be willing to stand because we love you for whatever your purposes are, no matter what it costs us. We say yes to you. We say yes to the marriage supper. We say yes to the love feast. Jesus, your leadership is magnificent. Just as you're praying, I just ask the Lord, say, Lord, show me this. Just break this down for me. Help me grasp this. Again, it's a complicated, many-layered storyline. We covered so much of it in 50 minutes. It was like, I thought, I don't know if this is even fair, but I'm like, throw it out there anyway. Holy Spirit, come and touch us. Come and touch us. Lord, I ask that even as some look at the transcription that we'll have up pretty quick in a few days or so, and they break it down, touch them, surprise them with how these verses come together. I ask you for living understanding. I ask you for the spirit of impartation. The spirit of impartation. Just with your word tonight. 
tonight. Nourish and cherish us. Yo 
faithful to my heart you're faithful to the end you'll come and marry me you're faithful to the end you're faithful to my heart you're faithful to the end you'll come and marry me oh glory glory holy spirit we ask you to come and rest on us come and rest on us come holy spirit we ask you come and touch our hearts touch our bodies even now tonight